Welcome to The Tanya Acker Show. I'm Tanya Acker. Welcome to The Tanya Acker Show, my friends. You know her. I know her. You know her from that incredible show, Hot Bench. I know her as the judge to my left with whom we hash it all out. Welcome to the show, Judge Patricia Domingo. I'm so happy to have you here. Thanks for coming. I mean, I know you interview so many important people and I'm like, geez, I can't wait to get important enough to be on the show and here I am. (laughs) Well, you know why? You know why? It's the holidays. People are talking about eating and drinking. I think that it's a moment for us to put the litigation and the angry litigants and the drama aside. And let's talk about what you've been up to, which is this incredible new book. Judge Domingo, everybody, has a new book, From the Kitchen to the Courtroom. Uh, Judge, Patricia, this is so exciting. Tell us about this book. Tell us why you wrote it, and then we'll get into it a little bit. Well, it all started over COVID. You know, sometimes good things come out of really horrible situations. And boredom was really getting to me. So I was by myself and I kept thinking, well, I look forward to dinner. I look forward to eating. So it started because I wasn't going out at all with what do I have in the house that I can use to make something. And as I started to make different dishes, and you know our mutual friend, Gary. (laughs) (laughs) When you make something um, and, and we'll put it out there. So he puts it out and he says, oh, we're getting a lot of feedback. People made the dish. They love it. I made pasta pizzio, peas and pasta and onions. And everybody was commenting, my mother did this. My grandmother did that. I remember this. So if you all, if you go to uh, the Hopfinch Facebook page about a year ago, early on in the pandemic, Patricia was putting up these incredible recipes and uh, gosh, they really, they really took off. I remember that very well because I was following them too myself. That was really the genesis of this then. So, you know, every time I did something, somebody would say, well, why don't you just put a cookbook together? And you know, Tanya, it sounds so simple, right? Because you you cook. I know you do. You go in the yeah. kitchen, you throw some things. Now I say to you, so what did you do? And you're like, well, I, I put some oil in. And I go, how much oil did you put in? You, I don't know. You know, you just put a little in. So then what happened was once I started to want to put the recipes down, I had to keep remembering how much I put in. And of course, you forget. You just start to do something. Go, oh, how much salt did I put in? How much this? I'd wake up in the middle of the night and say, Maybe you told them too much garlic. Go to that recipe again and take some garlic out, you know. And it really took a long time to go through the recipes and to eat them. And every picture that was in there, I took. So I made the dish. I took the photograph. Chris Gary said to me, so did you have them professionally done? I said, professionally? What did you think? I made a dish and then called some photographer to come over and take a picture. <laughs> I said, no. I made the plate. I took the picture. And sometimes I forgot to take the picture. So then I had to make it again. Anyway, it gets so were you your own tester? Did you do your own? I was looked like you gained any weight when we came back to work. You looked the same size. How did you do all this taste testing and end up? I did still in such good shape. I don't know if I'm such good. I see all you, you film me from here up. So (laughs) I said I would call my sister or my cousin Linda, they were my two tests, and I'd say, Could you do me a favor tonight? Could you make the Pasta metrigiana. So my sister goes, oh, we had pasta last night. You made us make the dish. We were eating so much pasta. Everybody's complaining. <laughs> so that's, those, those were my test kitchen. My cousin Linda, my sister. 
I thought that it was so interesting in this book uh, that you gave people some insight into who you are uh, and your family. I mean, I knew some of this stuff, but I got to tell you, uh, and folks, I'm serious, uh, you got to pick up Judge Domingo's book, because what I learned is that while all the rest of us were in our high chairs playing with Play-Doh and throwing cereal around, young little Patricia, young little baby Domingo was in her high chair playing with pasta dough. Uh, and so you really come from a not just an Italian culinary tradition, but the Domingo uh, culinary tradition. Because in this book, you really talk about how family was kind of the uh, how, how food rather was one of the uniting elements for your family. Tell us about that, and tell us tell us a little more about uh, you and the Italian immigrants who came to this country and gave rise to your great life. Yeah, they did. They really did. They really enabled me to to get where I am today, not knowing where it would be exactly, but at least giving me the foundation. You know, when we were growing up, we didn't have, we didn't have much. We were all living under one roof. And the bottom line is, if you had food on the table, you were rich. Mm. And that's kind of how we gauged how rich we were. We were always, there was always food. There was always company. There were always people living in the house. And my grandparents, both like my father's side, the Domingo side, my mother's, the Cocaros, they each came here by boat. They each came over to America, nobody speaking English, reading or writing English, kids in tow. And they settled in, in different areas of Brooklyn and they kept the Italian tradition. And that tradition was, you know, making home cooked meals and and making family and bringing them about the table to talk, to how better do you know who somebody is if you, unless you're sitting down at a table? You and I have had a dinner when we were in Manhattan, when we were doing shows. We exchanged more in that one dinner than we probably had in the four years before that. Totally um, agree. Totally agree. You know, there's a different comfort. There's a different, when you're sharing food, when you're sharing a meal, you're sharing your soul in some way. And so you don't just sit down to dinner with anybody. You know, you sit down with people because it's, it's a meal. It's a while. Especially, you know, with us, we had like five courses, you know, even when we went, we had three courses. We had the appetizer, the antipasta, the pasta, the meal, and we shared and you share food and you share your, and you share your experiences because it's, it's, there's a closeness and a warmth that helps you do that. And my family from both sides stressed it. You know, you had to sit down at the dinner table. Nobody didn't sit down. You didn't have a TV in the room. If you had a TV, you didn't have one in the room, that's for sure. And you didn't watch TV. And you talked about your day. And my mother knew, were we doing the right things? Were we okay? Were we eating? Were we not? You know, eating is a big sign that there's trouble with kids. If they're not eating, you something's up. You know, Patricia, it seems like that whole tradition of sitting at the table without distractions, without phones on the table. And I'm guilty of this. So, you know, I, I'm talking as much about myself as anybody else, but without distractions and just kind of focusing on the food and the company, we don't do as much of that anymore. Uh, do you think that we've become kind of more, I don't know, um, like we're not as careful with one another. Maybe we don't take, we're not as close to one another simply because we don't take time for this communion in the way that, uh, let's say, our parents and grandparents used to? Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I think that if you notice in your life, probably the people that you share a meal with, that you go to dinner with, 
it probably just very a small handful of people. Whereas when you were home and you sat down and, and you have siblings and, you know, they, you know, to sit at the table and talk and pass the food and who's talking, you know, and Italians are big talking over one another. That's why I talk over you on the show. I'm used to <laughs> who's talking here who's talking there you know and and it's it's good it's easy it's comfortable nobody gets angry everybody yells but nobody gets angry it's crazy but that's what we do i see with my sister's kids they moved away you know who lives in hoboken who lives here who lives there and you don't have that day-to-day contact where everybody's running around and sitting down finally at some point and saying ah i can breathe and i can talk to people i love what one of the things I like about the book is that it's really for anybody. I mean, you know, sometimes you get these cookbooks and they're so precise and it's like you have to have so many special tools and sieves and this and that. Your book is really for anybody. Tell us about a couple of your favorite recipes. And before I do that, I don't know, folks, if you've seen Judge Domingo on um, Rachel Ray. Was it on Rachel Ray that you were always doing your lasagna, your famous lasagna? Yeah. Is the famous lasagna recipe in the book? It certainly is. Amen. Really is. Yep. Because I always say lasagna is like the queen of all the pastas because it really takes a long time to make and there's a lot of ingredients and, and it's always a special occasion when you have lasagna. You know, you might like for a birthday or the holidays, my mother would say, what do you want? We'd all go, we want lasagna. Even on Thanksgiving, what are you going to have? We're going to start with lasagna. And by the time <laughs> the comes, you know, you don't want it. But, you know, you had to start the meal that way. You know, and everybody, I want to tell you, Tanya, everybody wanted credit for my lasagna when I was done. My sister goes, I think that's my recipe. I go, but it's mommy's recipe. That's the recipe we use. You know, we both had it. Um, but there are some recipes in here, of course, that I that I favor and that are, I, I think, like linguine and clam sauce. Mm. It looks complicated. It seems complicated. It's probably one of the more simple, if you're not using all, you know, fresh clams, it's probably one of the most simple recipes in the book because... You make up your sauce, you make the pasta, you throw it together. And like, it's true what you said, but anybody, I did this so that anybody could cook. Anybody could just say, you know what? I'm going to make this particular recipe. I have all these ingredients in, in my home. And if I don't, doesn't come out so good, I'll make it a little bit different next time or I'll change something. So when you were young, baby Patricia, and then young little girl Patricia, and your mom would be in the kitchen making things. What are some of your best food memories? And even more to the point, what was your favorite dish that mom made? Oh, well, Sunday gravy. The Sunday gravy was always the favorite. The Sunday gravy was, you'd come up, you know, to date myself a little bit and all. When I was, when we were younger, my sister and I, you know, we lived in the house. We were like late, you know, teenagers, like early 20s. And uh, we'd go out on a Saturday night. We'd go to a local place and dance and so on. And then we'd come home. Of course, it's late. It would, well, not too late. I'd be home like one or two. But anyway, the next morning, what would wake us up would be the aroma, the scent of the cooking gravy, the sauce just permeating through the room, coming upstairs. And we'd come downstairs. And we first thing we'd do was go, what did you make? And she'd go, don't touch that, you know. And we'd go over and we'd look at it. And we'd say, what are we eating? And she goes, you just got up. What do you mean you want to eat? You know, it was like in this yelling banter. So we go, we're hungry. So she was eat a little something first. But anyway, we would go to mass on a Sunday. And then we'd all go to my grandmother's house. My mother had uh, was one of five siblings. Everybody was had two or three kids. 
And we would all meet at my grandmother's house. And she had a very small apartment, which I actually lived in with my mother and my father when I was first born until I was a few years old. Uh, we had one room of the two bedrooms. And we would all go there. And she would put out an antipasta. She would make all the pasta, all the dough herself. She'd make pizzas of different types, focaccia. She, they had homemade wine because we had a little wine cellar in the basement. And she would make fresh pasta that she'd lay out on a, um, on a sheet on the bed. And it wasn't always my grandmother that did that. If you have any conversation with Italian-Americans, with, with, Italian, with immigrant family, they will tell you the pasta was always on the bed on a sheet or something, just dry, you know, trying to dry because they make it fresh that morning. And then we would go home and my mother would have our sauce, our gravy, and we would have all the, the meats in it, the meatballs, sausage, brajol, spare ribs, and a pasta and, and a salad. And that would be Sunday mid-afternoon we'd eat and that would be our dinner. And that was one of my mother, my favorite dish that my mother made. And she was always yelling, stop touching it, don't stir it, leave it alone. You have a chapter in the book, uh, sauce versus gravy. So yeah. frankly, like I didn't know there was a difference. When I think of gravy, yeah, I'm thinking like gravy sort of Southern style, right? With like fat and then you add flour or oil and then you kind of get it, you know, sort of brown and savory. Uh, what's the gravy that you're talking about in your sauce versus gravy chapter? Well, for some reason, there's been this long standing dispute are you eating? And it's all made from canned tomatoes, okay? So you're getting your canned tomatoes, whichever one you're using, your San Rosana, whatever company is making it, and you make you make a sauce. If you make a marinara sauce, there's no meat in it. You just sauteing some garlic, some uh, salt, pepper, a little bit of um, basil, and olive oil, and you're serving it. You're cooking it up and you're serving it. When we do Sunday sauce, people want to say, or I call it Sunday gravy. Why do I call it gravy? Because now there's meat in it. So you're cooking. Ah, all your I see. In it. So you cook. And, and if you look at the two, the two uh, sauces, the broad category, someone call them both sauces and then I'll, then I'll break it down. If you're making the two sauces, once you put the meat in it, I call it great. We call it in our family, we called it gravy because it actually, it was a little bit darker in color if you compare it to marinara sauce. And it had meats in it. And the meat juices would kind of change the color to make it almost a little more brownish in, in hue than, than a regular marinara sauce. So I say, and I say it in the book, you would never say marinara gravy. No, no one ever would say that. There's no dispute. But the dispute is when you put the meat in it, is it still gravy? Is it gravy or is it still sauce? And that debate remains. I call it gravy. I'm so happy to get to the bottom of this controversy and drama because <laughs> I wasn't quite better. sure that it existed, but now I will. I'm going to totally sleep better. I know uh, gosh, you but, weren't sleeping. I knew it was the dispute. I was totally now. I was like, if I show up at Hot Bench, I'm like, I didn't get enough sleep last night because I just don't know what to do about this gravy situation. <laughs> um, you know, seriously, Patricia, you, your family, you come from such a rich family history. You're a first-generation Italian-American. Uh, your parents came to this country for a better life, and they made one. Tell us a little bit about how you end up being the little baby Patricia playing with Play-Doh to being the first Italian-American woman to hold the seat that you did on the New York bench. Why law school? Why the judiciary? How did you end up there? Law school was never on my radar. I never even thought to go to law school. What I really wanted to be was a therapist. 
I loved psychology. I wanted to be a, and back now I went to college. So back then, um, psychology was almost like a, a, it was a new science that was coming around and people always questioned whether or not it was, um, like a junk science or whether it was real. And obviously it's now established itself as, as a real, um, a real science and a real, most people, you know, now have that counseling of some sort. Um, so when I wanted, when I went to college, I loved the idea of understanding the mind and people and their interaction and, and what they meant, what they saying, what they meant, etc. So I loved it. My mother was, what are you going to do with that? There's nothing you can do. There are no careers. I want, you know, be a school teacher. If you're a school teacher, then you're home at three o'clock or you're done at three. And so if you have a family, you can be home with those children, but you will go to college and you will do, you know. So being the typical Italian daughter, I appeased her by double major. I took a major in, in education and a major in psychology. Uh, when I went for my master's degree, both of them actually, I did, um, they were psychology. I was a psychology. It was a master's in uh, developmental psychology. So I kind of combined that. And then I was laid off in the budget crisis in 75. And I, my father said to me, what are you going to do? You have to do something. You can't stay home and do nothing. And I was thinking, like, why not? I, mean, <laughs> I really worked really hard all along. I was going to school at night, working during the day, going to school. You know, I would teach during the day and then drive up to Columbia University and go for my master's. So, and I did that post one you, man. You were hustling. You were hustling. But, but Tanya, I loved being in school and I loved psychology. So to me, it was, you know, I enjoyed it. And my parents, you know, they were good about it. They, you know, for a while at least. And then I said, I really need to do something uh, once I was laid off. So my father said, well, you want to move up. The, the encouragement always was, you've got to live. You've got to go up. You've got to move up. You don't go sideways. You don't go down. You go up. So we sat there and we go, well, and back then in the in the early 70s, there weren't that many uh, degrees. I mean, kids now, they do marketing, they do this, they do all sorts of, you know, computers have opened up a million different um, careers. Back then, you wanted to be a you go professional. You were a teacher, a doctor, a lawyer, or a dentist. So, you know, there really wasn't all this other stuff. So I couldn't go back undergraduate to, I didn't want to go undergraduate, back to for medicine or anything. I didn't have chemistry classes. So law school was the only place I could go from where I was. So I, would, I found out that they were giving the uh, the law boards uh, in October. And I found out, could I come in? They said, well, we if you walk in, we may be able to take you. I walked in, sat down, took the law boards. They allowed me to apply to three schools for free, which I did. I applied to three schools. The first one I made was St. John's. I said yes, and that was it. And I knew, I knew from day one, if I was going to do this, I was going to practice criminal law and I was going to be a judge. I knew it. That's that's what I wanted. And then that worked out. Uh, tell us about your time on the New York bench. Well, I started, I was a mayoral appointment to the criminal court. And the criminal court is the lower court. It's a court of limited jurisdiction. You just handle misdemeanor cases. You don't have any authority to do any civil matters, even small claims cases. From there, I was elected to the Supreme Court. And in the Supreme Court, the state of New York, you can sit, you have general and original jurisdiction. So you can hear you know, all cases of civil nature, criminal nature, et cetera. I still focused on, on the criminal cases. I was very good at it. I was a state prosecutor for five and a half years. I was a law clerk to three judges, criminal term, doing criminal work. So by the time I got on the bench, I had, that was really my, I mean, I could say that that was where I was the most comfortable. I was in my, I was in my 
my world when I was in, in the on the criminal bench. I did do matrimonial cases and this is from the Supreme Court for three years, but uh, that's not that wasn't my forte. So tell us about judging a case that broke your heart. I know about some of the abuse cases that you tried. All the abuse cases break your heart. Um, you're having children who sometimes in your mind you say to yourself, this child has been so abused for such a prolonged period of time and has suffered so much damage that ultimately when they find them dead, you think to yourself, oh my God, this the child has been spared at this point. I mean, it's it's horrific what people, you know, you cross your leg, you kick your furniture, you almost want to say, oh, I'm sorry, but people are kicking their kids across the room. Mm -hmm. They don't think twice about it. Uh, I handled some very well-known uh, child abuse cases. One was the death of Nick's Mary Brown, and it had been toted at the time as uh, one of the most, one of the worst child abuse cases in the century. And she was just so, so badly beaten and abused. And I did other, you know, other, other trials involving all these children, but I was also handling on a day-to-day -day basis, all of the cases that involved crimes against children for children 12 years and under that took place where the jurisdiction was in the Brooklyn Kings County area. And that was, those were cases that were all assigned to me amongst the other criminal aspects, the hate crime murders and, and the arsons and the rapes and the burglaries and all of those that I did. And so the, to the question that you asked earlier, that's what actually ended up putting me on the front page of the uh, New York Times because I had a reputation for resolving cases um, in, a, in, in a swift way so that people didn't languish in prisons that didn't have to and so that the victims got justice sooner than later. So there's a balance for both sides. Did you ever want to have kids? I don't know if we've ever talked about that. Did you ever want that in your life? I did. I did want that. I, I you know, I think God puts you where you are for a reason. And mm -hmm. I think you can always second guess what happened because I can't complain about my life at all. And I don't know whether or not if I had a child that would have turned out different, uh, whether or not it would have impacted on my ability to travel, to do the job. You just don't know. You know, my, my, one of my favorite expressions is, you can, if something, you know, people say, oh, what if this, what if that? All I say is you can never say your life would be better. You could only say your life would be different. Mm, amen. Amen to that. You are really quite a role model uh, for young people, but especially young women, because I think that so often, and, you know, we see this at work on our show, I, young women show up and they sort of think that their job is to make themselves pleasing or appealing uh, to someone for, you know, a, be it a boyfriend or a husband, and, and they kind of lose themselves, you know, whether they're loaning money they don't need to loan or putting themselves in situations that they shouldn't put themselves in. Uh, it seems that sometimes there's less focus on them. Like, what do they want? Who do you want to be? How do you want your life to turn out? And you've lived your life, I think, in such a uh, very intentional way where you are, you've been the decider of your own fate. I'll, I'll just leave it like that. And I think that there's a lot for people to learn from that. Uh, yes and no to what you just said, Tanya, because mm. I have made my own way, but sometimes I moved, I moved forward. I moved out of something because I was forced to because something not so good happened to me. And, you know, I remember when I, as I said to you, I was a teacher. Maybe I would have stayed a teacher, but for the fact that I was laid off in the budget cuts. So I go from the budget cuts. I say, all right, I, 
go to school. I leave school. I really wanted to do, let's say, go to the U.S. Attorney's Office at some point, but instead I went and I was a law clerk. If I weren't a law clerk, then that judge wouldn't have picked me. You know, there's all these, and I find that, and I think people have to learn this in life. You only move when you're forced to, because most people stay comfortable. That's why people stay in bad personal relationships. They stay in boring jobs. They stay because it's easy to stay. And people who say, oh, I really love my job, I love my job, they don't do anything, but then they get fired, they have to do something. So they're looking at the firing as what a terrible thing that's just happened to me. But meanwhile, it's the impetus that moves them forward, that gets them to do something else. And back to talking about the young girls and what they do, they're always not eating, they're always fixing themselves, they always don't think they're pretty enough. And I honestly, I say the same thing about myself. I say, you know what? How dare you complain about anything? You know, how dare you complain your hair didn't look right today or you didn't do this outfit didn't fit you the right way? How dare you do that when there are people who don't have any of what we have, you know, even an iota of what we have. And these young girls who sell themselves short for these for these guys who are just not worth it and hurt themselves. Some people hurt themselves, commit suicides and all because their boyfriend broke up with them. Don't ever, 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 ever do that. There's going to be a better guy or just another guy even around the corner. Don't, you can't, you can't make yourself get down over what other people, who other people are, and you can't let them abuse and mistreat you. I think also it's a good time to kind of go back where we started, like your book, From the Kitchen to the Courtroom, everybody, Judge Domingo's new book is out. Buy it. Buy it now. And because, by the way, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, you're going to need a break from like turkey and ham and all that stuff. Like, go make some pasta. Go check out the judge's book. I like how you describe the genesis of this book really being your decision to kind of take these kind of dark quiet pandemic moments and share your recipes uh, with first the Hot Bench audience and now with everybody that can buy your book. So there really is a lot to, you know, it really is about a pivot. It's about when you see something, when you experience something tough, when you see something dark, you can use that. Uh, and I get from you that that's one of the, that was a, a lesson that you got from your family. Tell me about what advice you would give to these young people who maybe didn't have or don't have your strong family background, you know, who didn't have parents and grandparents who uh, support them and explain to them how you take a disadvantage or a troubling situation and turn it to your advantage. Everybody doesn't have that. A lot of people don't have that foundation. So what's your advice to those young people? You know, you're right. A lot of people don't. And not every family is ideal. Like, I, I did this as a, to pay homage to my family. But we yelled and we fought and we, you know, nobody has a great, perfect life. Nobody does. But, there are so, but with the social media and with the advantages that we now have in life today, there are so many different positive people out there that you can say, you know what? I like that person's story. That person is similar to me. I feel a certain simpatico or comfort with that person's personality. I think I can do it. And I think that that's what's so important about having different people from different backgrounds and different worlds represented um, in different jobs and in different uh, capacities because people, I, younger people I can identify, can find the person that's their uh, pseudo-parent, their pseudo-sibling, their pseudo-godmother or aunt or whatever it is 
One of us even, Tanya, you, me, somebody, there are people out there. We did it. We were down in the dumps at times. We were unhappy. We had bad relationships. We had fights with our family. We didn't always get along with our siblings. We burned the food in the pot, whatever it was. But nevertheless, we we were able to to move from there. Friends, other other people that we would just, you know, I'm going to just say this one thing. There's nobody in my life, nobody, whether I loved them, liked them, or hated them. There's nobody in my life I didn't learn something from. Mm. I second that. Very, very. It's a, I mean, it is absolutely true. Even if something dark happens with someone, Patricia, right? That you can either, you learn something from the way that you react to it and you learn something from the way that someone else, you know, from the, uh, the reactions that other people give you. I think that's absolutely a hundred percent true. It is. Uh, really, really good advice. And the other part of that is that you know, I, don't you think it's important that we all kind of take a minute to slow down so we can remember uh, to learn or so that we can actually take the time rather to, to learn from that dark moment? I mean, things just go so fast. So everybody slow down for a minute, sit at the table, get Judge Domingo's book from the kitchen to the courtroom, and like, let's process through the holidays in a more deliberative, a more deliberate, intentional, and happy fun and positive way. What makes you hopeful, Patricia? Like when you look at all of the, you know, you turn on the news these days, everybody's mad about something. Everybody's angry about something. Uh, there's a lot that I think can get folks down. What makes you happy? There's a lot that gets you down. But the thing is, that's, that's all they're showing you. That's what you're seeing up there. You know, if you can't gauge your life based on every all, all of this turmoil and sadness, because if you think about your day, there's a lot of good things in your day. Whether it's, you know, you're, you're eating something that you love or you're seeing someone that you care about or you're, you're just going for a walk and you're, you're in your own head. There are so many things that you can get a good feeling from. Those are the things you have to keep reliving. Those are the experiences that you have to focus on. And yes, there are sad things, there's tragedy, there are people that are being hurt, just like what I saw in my job, but that's not the world. The world has, a, you know, like you're talking about the holidays, you'll open up your door and there'll be, uh, there'll be Christmas lights everywhere, there'll be trees, there'll be Hanukkah candles, there'll be all sorts of things out there that are beautiful, that are pretty, that, that make you smile. And, you know, I'll just tell you something, when my mother passed, I thought, oh my God, I don't think I'm ever going to be happy again. I don't think I'm ever going to laugh. And then I was lying in bed and I put the TV and I flipped the channel. A comedian was on and I actually belly laughed. And I thought to myself, you see, you will laugh again. You will. And you do. And so you can't let yourself focus on all these things that are tragic and sad. Your own sadness and tragedy, the other sadness and tragedy of others. You have to be able to empathize with people. You have to be able to be sympathetic to people and, and their cause and, and what they are, but you can't, you can't let it bring you down where you're useless to people then. then. Then you can't be a constructive part of the world. So you just have to smile and move on. Well, speaking of being a constructive part of things, uh, folks, you all should know that Judge Domingo is donating a portion of the proceeds from her new book, The Kitchen of the Courtroom, to St. Jude's Children's Hospital. Uh, that's a wonderful thing to do, uh, Patricia. Why that hospital in particular? Do you have uh, some connection with its work? I mean, aside from the fact that they are doing the work of the angels, yes. 
uh, tell us more about uh, why you wanted to support St. Jude's. And, you know, I think that when you see children hurting, I don't, I don't think there's a pain any greater to, to someone who's got to watch that. It's to see a child in pain or a child losing their life. And from my understanding of St. Jude, they, they give almost every penny that you give them goes to these children. They pay for nothing. The families pay for nothing. My father had always made contributions. And I just wanted to continue to do that. Uh, and it, it's a cause that, that I think is, is wonderful. I, I don't need the money from this book, you know? I mean, what's it gonna give me, basically? So I wanna just give it to, I wanna, I wanna give a portion of it to, the, uh, to those in need. And I just thought that that was just an amazing cause. I used, from when I was a little girl, I used to watch Danny Thomas say, you know, talk about the hospital and how he started it, and then Marla Thomas carried it through. So it's always, it's always been a charity and, and a cause that I have felt about, felt warmly about. Paying it forward uh, just in the way that you were raised, my friend. I, I must say, I feel so fl- uh, fortunate and blessed to have met your parents uh, a few times when we started out on our TV adventure together. And I am super blessed and appreciative to be sitting up there on that stage with you. From the kitchen to the courtroom, Judge Patricia Domingo, get the book, get the book now. Part of the proceeds are going to St. Jude's Children's Hospital. You will learn the difference between pasta, I'm sorry, you'll learn the difference between sauce and gravy. And like me, you will sleep better at night. Um, But most importantly, you can read a little bit about uh, what uh, my sister J.P. Domingo has been up to, where she comes from, uh, and then just really beautiful stories about your family. Um, they, they, they really warm the heart. And it's just a perfect, perfect antidote for some of the dark noise out there right now. So thanks for writing the book, Patricia. Judge Patricia Domingo, From the Kitchen to the Courtroom. Also, you can see her on that phenomenal, twice Emmy-nominated show, Hot Bench. Where we lights up the screen. Uh, seriously, Patricia, loved having you here. Please come back. Let's do this again. This loved having great. you here. Nanya, this was just, it was terrific. It was really great. You did a wonderful job. And thanks. Ah, I appreciate you right back, sis. I'll see you soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye. The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. Darkoya Connor and Sam Fragoso are our producers. Rich Marchuka is our editor. Cole Mitchell is our composer. Our production assistant is Sydney Freeman. Our graphic designer is Greta Lalike. Audrey Ruiz is our social media manager. And our web developer is Eric Valentine. If you like us, and I hope you do, please subscribe, please leave five stars, and please come back. Thanks so much for being here.